Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. I am Talbot Davis, and whether you're live, whether you're live stream, as always, 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 it's my really my great privilege to be able to connect with you on a Sunday morning, and so glad that you've connected with us. And this is the first day of a new series. It's called On the Grid. Today's message is When You've Done Too Much. And uh, all of these messages in this series are going to come from the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, And so if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it to Exodus chapter 2 and verses 1 through 22. And maybe your Bible is is in a book that looks like this, or maybe it's loaded on your phone. Either way is okay. Maybe it's not here at all, and that's okay as well. Where the when we need them, the verses will be up on the screen, and uh, that's really vital to us. You're able to see the Bible for yourself when whenever we gather together, because. We believe not only is the Bible a library, which is something you may not know, but it is true. And when we're in the book of Exodus, it's the section of the library devoted to history. And when I mean history, I mean ancient, ancient history. About 3,700 years ago or 1,700 years before Jesus. And, a lot of, and when I say it's a library, that means it's written by a lot of authors over a long span of time in multiple, multiple writing styles. And, and God is just so good to us. He gives us the history section so that we can really glean some remarkable lessons from it. And this is kind of a fact that the Bible's not a book, but it is a library. The other thing that we remind ourselves when we gather, you may never have heard this stuff before, but when we gather, we remind ourselves also of the fact that in leadership here, and this may be something you don't believe yet, or maybe something you emphatically believe, we just like to be clear. And it's in leadership here. We, don't, we believe there's no other library like it. We, we think God breathed his life into its words. He put his truth onto its pages. We really do believe that the Bible is inspired and eternal and true. Because we believe that here, when we talk about the Bible, and some of you already beat me to the punch, we do this different thing. We lift it up. And again, if you've not been here before, you haven't tuned in before, and you're looking around, and there's Bibles and phones in the air, and you're just like, that's different. We don't get defensive about it. We admit it. This is different, unusual, but we've discovered this, this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We're a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be true unleashed in our lives today. Amen. And before I say another word, we're going to pray. And before I pray, would you please look at the person on your right and then look at the person on your left. And because prayer is not a spectator sport, it's something we do together. Would you, we're going to pray silently at the beginning. Would you pray that that person on your right and that person on your left, that God speaks deeply to them through this message. Let's begin by praying that way. God, thank you for the privilege of this community and that we can pray together. And I, I do pray for every person on the right and on the left that they would, you would speak deeply to them through this message. And I pray for me as one delivering it. And I really, truly am powerless without you. And because of you, I'm never helpless. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are uh, starting this series today, and it's called On the Grid. 
which is the opposite of off the grid. And off the grid is essentially when adults play hide and go seek. Off the grid is when adults detach from technology, unplug from the internet, retreat from society, stop paying their power bills and stop submitting their tax reports and end up going and living on a mountain where no one can ever find who they are or where they live. They literally move off the grid. And to some of you, you're like, hey, that sounds, you, you, if you knew the week I had, Talbot, that sounds like a great idea. And, and it does, there's something about it. The, the, the problem is it's not really very sustainable to live off the grid. And, and actually the, the origin of this whole message series, I don't often tell you like where the ideas exactly come from, but I was having lunch with a guy who's in this church and we were having lunch at Jim and Nick's. We we're having us some barbecue for lunch and, and he was telling me about this person and his family who'd gone off the grid and how frustrating it was for him to deal with this off the gridder. And I was like, well, then I need to do a sermon series called On the Grid and voila, here it is today. And so that's where it all comes from because as appealing as it may sound to live for a time off the grid, the truth is, the truth is, Good Shepherd, we all th have things and areas in our lives that we need to embrace rather than avoid. We all have issues that we need to address rather than escape. As tempting as it is to move off the grid, either on a grand scale or just, just can I just get away for a little bit and, and not deal with this? The, the truth is we, we need to address and embrace what we want to avoid and escape. And our guide for this whole series is Moses. Moses from the ancient Old Testament book of Exodus. And now a lot of you may know Moses as, and when you think of Moses, you think of Charlton Heston and you think, well, he must look exactly like the guy looks in the movie. He may, looked, may have looked something like that. I suspect he looked a lot more Middle Eastern than that. But here's the cool thing about Moses, that his birth, his origin story is literally off the grid. Moses was born completely 100% off the grid. Why was he born that way? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because when Moses was born 3,700 years ago, the children of Israel, the Jews, were enslaved in Egypt. And Egypt was led by what, what we call Pharaoh, which is like the Egyptian king. And the Pharaoh at the time, with this ensl the enslaved uh, Jews in his midst, became quite alarmed at all the robust baby boys being born. Whew, I got all those bees out of the way. He got very uneasy about all these healthy Jewish baby boys being born. And so he issued a decree that every Jewish male who was born must be killed. It was like abortion after, on the other side of the womb is what was going on. And well, with all that background, this is what's happening to baby boys being born who happen to be Hebrew. Look how Exodus chapter two and verses one through five begins. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. That means a Jewish man married a Jewish woman. 
And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw he, he was a fine child, she hid him. You might want to circle that word hid. She hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister, meaning baby's sister, meaning Moses' sister, we don't know how much older she was, but somewhat older, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So you see what happens? That, that the body keeps the score, good shepherd. And Moses' first experience as a human being is being hidden. And so somehow that gets woven into his DNA. It gets woven into his body and his mind and his soul. And somehow from the very beginning, he recognizes, he acts out this reality that my first response to stress is to hide. And so he's hidden in the reeds and the rushes of the Nile River. Look what happens next to this three-month-old baby put in a basket on the river. Verse five, then Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's the king who ordered all the Egyptian baby boys, the Jewish baby boys to be killed. Went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And I'm like, you think you put a three month old kid in the basket in the river? Yeah, he's going to cry. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, Moses' older sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yeah, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. But Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know she's gone to get the baby's birth mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. And so the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she, meaning Moses' mother, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So you see the end result of this intrigue, of this deception, of this hiding, is Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses and every other little Jewish boy who was born, ends up raising him as his own son and doesn't even know what's going on. So instead of being killed by Pharaoh, Moses ends up being raised in Pharaoh's luxury. But again, the body keeps the score. The, the, the mind knows what has happened. And from the very earliest, Moses is learning. It's being imprinted into his soul. When you face stress, you go hide, which sort of makes sense out of the next pretty dramatic scene. It starts in verse 11. Take a look at what verse 11 of, of Exodus chapter 2 says. One day after Moses had grown up. Now, how grown up was he? We don't know. Exodus's author, who we think is Moses himself, leaves out Moses' high school yearbook. Doesn't tell us anything about Moses' first girlfriend. We don't know what ma Moses majored in when we went to college. All we know is that he done growed up. 
And look what happens. Next part of verse 11. He went out to where his own people were, meaning to where the other Jews were, even though he's being raised as an Egyptian. And watch them at their hard labor. So there's the crux of the matter that he sees his own people enslaved. And then it goes from bad to worse. In the next part of verse 11, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, in case you didn't catch that it was one of his own people from the, the previous phrase. So you, you go from slavery to abuse to downright beating. And all that sets up, all that stirs something up in Moses, and, and I don't love what happens in the next verse, but I love how it's told. Look, look at what it says in verse 12. Looking this way and that way and seeing no one. See, he's, he's hiding, he's secretive, he's deceptive, and he's about to turn lethal. Looking this way and that. Where does he not look? He doesn't look up. Looking this way, and that way, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. Now, how did he kill him? Was it with a gun? Or a club? Or a wood chipper? We, we don't know. Because it doesn't say. It's just like how, how did Cain kill Abel? We don't know. Because it doesn't say, apparently that's one of those details we always ask of the Bible, that the Bible's not that interested in, in telling us about. All that we know is that he killed this Egyptian. He's been stirred up to try and rescue his, his uh, Hebrew kinman and, and kills the Egyptian. And look what he does next. Look at the last part of, of verse 12. And hid him in the sand. There's that word again. This boy who'd, who'd been hidden from his birth, this boy who hides his origin story, this boy whose first reaction to stress is to hide, he takes the evidence, hello, a dead Egyptian body, and hides it in the sand. It's marvelous told, marvelously told. And it's, it's interesting to me, you, you may not think of it this way, but the, the majority of, of Jewish people, Hebrew listeners, who are hearing this story read out loud, because that's how they experienced the Bible when it was written. They would have been like, they, a little bit of a fist, but you go Moses. Because the oppressor, what, what was the guy doing? He was beating one of his own slaves. And so there had to be a little bit among the Jewish people reading this story. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now we don't know how God felt about it. That, that's the scripture silent on that. And we can just assume how the original audience was like, okay, I understand why he did this. However, look what happens next, verses 13 and 14. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the, this is Moses. He, asked, he, he sure runs into a lot of people who are fighting, doesn't he? He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. So Moses gets back on the grid. He stops hiding and he realizes everybody knows what I've done and this sense of dread at getting back on the grid and, and sort of being exposed. And, and, and then this information, this story moves inevitably up the, the Jewish Egyptian 
food chain and look who finds out what has happened next. Look next, verse 15. When Pharaoh, uh uh-oh, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses, there's that marvelous word, fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by the well. Oh, Lord. So Pharaoh hears what Moses has done to an Egyptian man. He's killed a man maybe just to watch him die. And he's killed him. And and then there's a bounty put out on Moses' head. And what does he always do when he faces stress? What's his default response to anxiety? To flee and to hide. He figures that he's past the point of no return. He's done too much. He's hidden too much and it's gonna be exposed. And there's no coming back. And as far as you all hearing my voice, whether you're live or live stream, I, I don't think many of you have hit a body in the sand. At least I hope. But you may have hidden some search histories from your internet account. And you feel like there's no going back. And others of you may have hid that month that you spent in a behavioral unit and there's no going back. And others of you may be trying to hide those times that you drunk dial or drunk Facebook and if word gets out, there's no going back. And then some of you may be hiding what you've done with those taxes that first year and it worked out. And so you did it the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And there's no going back. Yeah, the body keeps score. And you've discovered that that hiding and fleeing is an effective response to stress. And Moses' story, this ancient, ancient story, has so many parallels with your story. And you become quite expert of avoiding what you need to embrace and not address and escaping what you actually need to address. And with all that bubbling under the surface, what, what, what happens next is fascinating. Because did you notice where it tells us Moses, Moses fled to? He went to live in Midian. Do you know what Midian was in, in, for the Old Testament people? They might as well have said Moses went to live on Mars, except hotter. Moses was remote. Rose, uh, uh, Moses. Midian was remote. Midian was rocky. Midian was inhospitable. Midian was the kind of place that everybody is from and nobody goes to. No, nobody willingly goes to Midian except someone who's made a habit out of hiding when he thinks he's gone too far. God has other plans though, because look what happens in verse 17, verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And because Moses had sat down by a well, And I don't know if you know this or not, but a well, even in a place like Midian, a well was kind of a community center and a well was also kind of like a singles bar. I I do not exaggerate. That's what wells were for. Verse 17, some shepherds came along and drove them away because these were not good shepherds. You all are good shepherds. These were bad shepherds. The bad shepherds 
came along and you know my great fear is that someone's gonna start a church in this area called Better Shepherd. Some, some shepherds came along and drove them away, but look here. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And I don't know if you know this, this is one of those verses that is so easy to skim right over in reading kind of a long Bible story. But verse 17 of Exodus chapter two changes everything in Moses' story because it is as if God uses that encounter, the, these poor women assaulted by these bad shepherds and he gets Moses to use that and he uses that in Moses' life to make him stop hiding and make him get up and rescue because God knows, that God knows that deep inside Moses, there is a man who is at his heart, a defender and a rescuer. Even when he killed the guy, he was defending and he was rescuing one of his own, one, one of his Hebrew kinsmen. And, and now he's defending and he's rescuing the Midianite women. And, and all of that is just foreshadowing, letting us know what the rest of the book is gonna be about, where Moses is defending and rescuing the Jewish people. Moses has wanted to let his failures define him but Moses has wanted to let the, the wrong that he has committed be the defining reality of his life. And God says, no, 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 Moses. I've got something I want you to get in touch with. I've got someone I have put deep inside you. And if I have to send seven Midianite women to a singles bar at the well to get you to realize it, that's exactly what I'll do. Verse 17 changes everything. And it even, it even locates Moses into a family. Because look what happens in verses 18 through 22. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, well, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian, see, they think he's Egyptian, even though he's really Jewish, rescued us from the bad shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Rule asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Okay, this, is, this doesn't happen in our day very often that you get invited to dinner and you come home that night married to the guy's daughter. But, so, but this is common in the ancient world. Verse 22, Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershon saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And man, Look what happens there. The, the, the rescuer becomes a player, the romancer. He's not only back on the grid, he's back on the game, baby. So he, he, he comes home with, with a wife. And so what do, we, what do we make of all of this? What, what is every one of us, every one of us who defines ourselves not by what's most deeply true about us, but by what is most recently true about us. What is every one of us who has things that we are hiding, has a search history that embarrasses us? What is every one of us who has found it easier to hide in shame than to thrive in grace? What does this say to people like the guy who told me when we were 17 years old 
and I'd just become a Christian and so I was loving Jesus and I didn't know any better. I was telling everybody about Jesus and, and the 17-year-old friend said, no, I've already done too much. I am going to hell when I die. And you're like 17. Some of you are just getting started on the good sin and at 17. And what is this? What does this say to every one of us who feels like we've gone too far past the point of no return? This marvelous story that pivots at verse 17 where Moses gets in touch. He gets up and he rescues. Here's what I want you to know. Here's why God has had you tune in. Here's why God has brought you here. It's this. God will not allow the wrong you've committed to obscure the good he created. That God has put inside you and inside you and inside you and inside you. There's something good and beautiful and right and joyful. And we have this habit of covering over all that goodness and all that rightness and all that beauty and all that joy with these wrongs. Yeah, I'm not trying to call wrong things right, but we think those wrong things define us. We think those wrong things mean we have gone too far and there is no coming back. And that, my friends... That's a lie from the pits of hell because God will not allow the wrong you've committed to obscure the good that he created. Because it's so much like a, like a house with a basement. Not, not a lot of you have homes with basements in the Carolinas. I lived in New Jersey and I had one and, and, and Kentucky and I had a house with a basement. And, and, but when, when you think about houses with basements, like nobody sees the basement. You, you see the house that's on top of the basement. And, and in the, but the basement is that which gives the home stability and, and structure. And, and, and in the same way, and you see the wrongs that other people commit, a lot of them but you don't know what's deep, most deeply true about them. Or you see the wrongs that you commit, all of them. And it sometimes make you for, makes you forget what's most deeply true about, about you. See what, what's most deeply true. Some of you, some of you even today, you have a compulsion that you want to act out on even today and maybe it's cocaine and maybe it's alcohol and maybe it's gambling and maybe it's shopping and maybe it's internet porn. You have something there. And, and the part above the basement once is like, do it, do it, do it even today. But that's not what's most deeply true about you. In the deepest part of you, what and who God has put deep inside, what he created, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be ashamed to yourself and embarrassment to your family. You don't want to send that text message. You don't want to pop that beer. You instead want to live into the beauty and the goodness that is the truest thing about you. It's just like a, a, a geode. Some of you may not know what a geode is. It's a geo, geo, uh, geographic formation, geological formation. It could be a geo, geographic formation too if you want to put it on a map. But it's a geological formation in, in which there's a rough exterior and crystalline quartz beauty on the inside. And, and that's the way so many of us are. We have this exterior that could be murky and could be rocky and could be rough and it obscures the crystal beauty that is deep within. And God has brought you here to remind you what he created, what he 
put in. And that'll never, that what, whatever wrongs you commit will never be stronger, will never be greater, will never be more internal than the good, the crystal beauty that he put within. See, I think the reason that a lot of us struggle in this area is because we erroneously think that the Bible starts at Genesis chapter three instead of realizing it started at Genesis chapter one. And some of you are like, huh? Well, I'll tell you. Genesis 3 is where you have the story of the man and the woman and the snake and the fruit and the bite and the fall and and the exile from the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 is where sin enters the, the picture. And a lot of us believe, well, that's where the Bible starts. That's where my story starts. I am above all. First of all, I am this sinning fool failure. But you forget where the Bible really began. The Bible really begin. Can we all agree that chapter one comes before chapter three in every book that's ever been written? Chapter and in, in Genesis chapter one, what what does God create? How how does the story get told? God creates the earth, good. God creates the sun, good. God creates the moon, good. God creates the stars, good. God creates the land, good. God creates the animals, good. God creates man. Very good. God creates woman, even better. Very good. Now, do not hear what I am not saying. You, you're a sinner who needs a savior. And Jesus is that savior. But I just don't want that reality to obscure the first word that God spoke over all of us beyond that, before that, the first word that God spoke over all of us is not just good, it's very good. And so much of the salvation story is getting back in touch with that very goodness at our core. God will not allow the wrong you've committed to obscure the good he created. So, Where is it for you? Where's the crystalline beauty at your core that you've allowed stuff to obscure? Are are you like Moses? Are you a rescuer and a defender and you've just allowed your temper to get in the way? Or, Or maybe, maybe for some of you, for some of you, you have that highest calling of them all to be a really good dad. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we are in the middle of a culture in desperate needs of really good dads. And some of you have allowed the fact that you weren't well-parented yourself to get in the way of what and who God really put in your heart. Or maybe, maybe you're one of those and, and you have a gift for teaching the word. You could teach the word to adults or you could teach the word to children, but somehow along the way, you've let the world get in the way of your love for the word. Or maybe you even have the gift of encouragement. And somewhere along the way, you have allowed the world's knack for pointing out what's wrong with people and situations and events to turn you into a cynic instead of an encourager. And God's brought you here because he wants to scrape away 
all that junk, all the wrong you've committed and get you back in touch with the good that he created. He doesn't want any of us to be defined by our failures. He wants us to be redefined. And instead of thinking about so much about all the wrong that we've done, how about you marinate on how great he is? Because who else? Who else had a time of hiding in Egypt? Who else was rejected by his own family and persecuted by the authorities? Who else had a time in the wilderness? Who else rescued a woman at a well? Who else was the defender of people who had no defense? Jesus, the better Moses. Won't you surrender to him? Won't you celebrate him? Won't you get on the grid with him? Not just a better Moses, the only savior today. Let's pray. God, thank you that you really are so good. Thank you that anytime we read about Moses, it's to point us to the better Moses. And I ask God that by the power of the risen Christ, you would help each one within the sound of my voice re-encounter the good that you created. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.